on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice. You can't tell me that there aren't bright children in every part of this city, even among the people who are the poorest. It doesn't make sense. Of course there are kids from these zip codes who should have a place in these schools, even if you can't tell from the regular metric. In my previous podcast series, The Complexion of Teaching and Learning, I would close by saying that reflection and discussion about our past and present can produce the most fruitful future. The inequities that exist in public schools today didn't start during the pandemic. There's a complex legacy of people, perspectives, policies, and practices that inform the people, perspectives, policies, and practices of today. Until we understand this, it will be challenging to understand the inequities in our systems and expand opportunities for educational justice. This is what I appreciated about Kamika Royal's book, Not Paved for Us, Black Educators and Public School Reform in Philadelphia. While based in Philly, it tells a widely relatable story about public school system dysfunction, backlash, justice seeking, and its impact on the students it is supposed to serve. Join me as Dr. Royal and I discuss her book, which I affectionately say feels like when Abbott Elementary meets The Wire. This is The LP. Welcome, folks and fam, to The LP Podcast, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to be more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. And today we have a special guest in the space. We have Dr. Kamika Royale. She has written the recently released Heat, Not Pay for Us, Black Educators and Public School Reform in Philadelphia. Dr. Royale is an educator. Uh, currently, she's an associate professor of urban education at Loyola uh, University in Maryland. Her research primarily focuses on the roots of school reform ideology practices and policies. She got her bachelor's in English literature at NCU, and then she got her master's of teaching at Johns Hopkins University, and then she got her doctorate in philosophy and urban education at Temple, back home to Philly. Welcome, Dr. Royal. How you doing, sis? I'm good, and I, I want to be clear. Uh, the name of my undergraduate institution, people call it NCCU, North Carolina mm -hmm. Central University. Yes, you know, it was funny when I, when I said that, I was like, wait, uh-oh, maybe I should have added that C. Well, I appreciate the clarity. Keep on holding me up like that, sis. I appreciate it. Thank you <laughs> now, for me. So we, we tend to break into these conversations with, um, what was your favorite text as a kid, if you had one? What was your favorite text as an adolescent, if you had one? And then what is your favorite text as an adult, if you had one? All right, so I'm going to be real honest. As a kid, I really didn't enjoy reading, probably until about the sixth grade but I don't remember the names of the books. They were all these like, it was like a babysitter's club type of vibe. Um, those were the books I started reading then. All right. And what's your favorite text as an adult? Uh, Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon. Mm. Mm. I've read Beloved and I've read Sula. I've not gotten to Song of Solomon yet. Got to read Song of Solomon next. Gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I, I do want to give a shout out to Terry McMillan. Um, mm -hmm. I read uh, Waiting to Exhale as a junior. I got to choose that book. And that was the first book that I really sort of interacted with as a 15-year-old. I was like, yes, this is amazing. Mine was Invisible Man around the same uh, age. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yep, yep. So, but let's hop into your book. Your book, Not Paid for Us. For me, it read like <laughs> what happens when Abbott Elementary meets the wire. <laughs> because it was I like this. <laughs> because that, you know, that again. Abbott <laughs> Elementary meets the wire. Yes. That's what, that's what it was. That's what it was. Since it was like um, you know, it was like this really gritty, unfortunate story about corruption, but still courage and resilience told in the context of Philadelphia education, right? Um, But with that being said, I would like for you to try to explain to folks what general truths can non-Philly residents pick up about policy and practice in United States education from reading your Philly-based book? Mm -hmm. I would start out with the truth that all schooling is political. All schooling is political from um, who gets hired, um, how they get hired, who gets released when, you know, there's a budget crunch and in what order, who gets the contracts, who controls facilities down to how parents are engaged, how grading is done or is not done, tests, every part of school down to who, who gets the contract for the windows, who's responsible for uh, asbestos remediation. All, every part of schooling is political. It is a political endeavor. And it can't be separated from politics. So when people say we need to get politics out of school, it is impossible. There is no separation. When they, when they say that, what they actually mean is they, they want to push an agenda that they don't want you to be able to name, but all schooling is political. Um, And that's what this book looks to sort of explore the ways uh, the politics of schooling impacts um, educators and communities. Yeah. One major symbol of the politics of education for me that keeps on popping up in your book is this guy named Mayor Frank Rizzo. Mayor Frank Rizzo was like a menace. <laughs> and this man, this man was a very fascist police leader and mayor. What I wanted to ask you was like what policy and or practice should be removed on a local, state, or national level that represents what he was about. I feel like that's so complicated, right? Because I I don't even know that it's a specific um, policy, but it's more an ideology. Mm. So I often tell people when they ask about Rizzo that Rizzo out-liberaled the liberals. Rizzo appointed people to the school board. The Black uh, folks in Philadelphia had been sort of asking for more representation on the Board of Mm -hmm. Education. In Philadelphia, the board is not elected. It is appointed by the mayor. And so they wanted to have more Black representation as there were and still are an overwhelming percentage of Black students in the district. I think at at that time, it was something like 65% Black students in the district, but there was always like one or two board members who were Black. Frank Rizzo was the first person to put, I think, three um, Black board members uh, on the board at the same time, and one of his appointees became uh, the president of the board, which was the first time a Black person had held that position. If I was going to rescind something from the Frank Rizzo era, Honestly, it would be the appointing of board members. I think the people should choose who represent them to oversee the work of the superintendent in the district. Um, I don't think that it should be at the the will of the mayor and people should be doing the mayor's bidding. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm, I like how you encapsulated he out-liberaled the liberals because based off of everything I had read or understood about Frank Rizzo, the man who, you know, beat down kids during that walkout, the student walkout in Philly, Uh, the man who, you know, stripped down Black Panthers and assaulted Black Panthers in in Philly, Um, the man who uh, said he was going to make Attila the Hun look like an F word, right? Like 
all these really intensely crazy things, I see him actually electing more board, black board members or appointing more black board members than anybody before him. Um, that that was fast. It, it kind of jarred me a bit, right? Um, because it's like that didn't match, but it technically still matched with his ultimate agenda, which was placate folks, like appease folks, but still yeah. hold on to what you're trying to uh, hold on to in terms of your power. If you had to describe your communication style throughout the book, how, how does it show up in your text? How does it potentially impact people's reception of your message? That's, I mean, I'm, I, I guess I'm a bit more curious how you see my uh, communication style as someone who recently read the book, yeah. but you know, I'm black and I'm, I'm churchy, right? So like, there's the part of me that I think you, you may hear, if you're familiar with black church, you may hear a little bit of that um, in the text. Um, and I think it gives good insight. I'm also churchy, but haven't been since 2019 because I can't sit under the patriarchy um, anymore. But I, I think that sort of, um, I think that's what my communication style probably sounds like. What do you think? I was personally grateful that a book about history and policy and practice read like a story that anybody can read and pull from allegorically for their situation. I know you, you just told it like you was, you was spilling the tea. <laughs> on, on, and on, that's on what it film. felt like to me sometimes. Yeah. Like, Ooh, girl, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what these people did, right? One person you give a lot of props to who seems very around the way was Constance Clayton. Um, can you share who she was real quick for the people who don't know and what can teachers and system leaders learn from her? So Constance Clayton is still alive. She is in her 80s in Philadelphia. Um, she was the first black woman superintendent of schools in Philadelphia. So she was the first black person and the first woman to mm -hmm. occupy that space. She was selected in the fall of, in October of 1982. And she held that post until July, 1993, um, which made her the longest running, makes her still the longest running superintendent in the modern era of schools um, as a child. So I started out, if you read the introduction, I started out my schooling in private school, but I switched to the school district in Philadelphia for seventh grade. Um, when and in 89, when she was very much superintendent, and one of the you know things about her was we all as children we knew her name, we believed that she was like invested in us, and so come up on snow days, you know, is y'all we gonna have school tomorrow? Y'all know Constance Clayton is gonna make us go to school tomorrow, she did not play. But she meant a lot to so many, not just to, you know, the children who knew her names, but the Black educators who, who described getting uh, opportunities and experiences under her tutelage they had been denied previously. Um, she specifically meant a lot to Black women, some of whom called themselves Connie's girls and modeled their careers after her. So she has meant a lot to Philly. Yeah. What, what, what would you say would be important for uh, the average educator in a classroom or a principal or even a system leader to pull from uh, Miss Clayton's walk as a superintendent to inform how they show up to provide the best education for students that they can? You know, Constance Clayton was very clear from the beginning that she was there for children. Now, every superintendent tells you that, 
But one of the things people noted about her was when politicians came to her to try to um, sort of get her under their control and tell them how things were going to be. She was like, yeah, I don't have no rep for you, homie. Sorry. Like, see you. I'm not I'm not here for that. Um, and she put herself, you know, she did that at great risk to herself. And so I would encourage our leaders and superintendents to remember that these spaces of privilege we occupy, we don't occupy, we should not occupy for ourselves. And, and we have to be willing to assume the risks that come with standing up for the most marginalized, uh, sort of oppressed. Yeah. Watching Clayton move in those corridors of power was interesting, um, particularly because like you, you gotta you gotta be strategic, right? Um, especially as a superintendent. Mm-hmm. And and in that strategy, in that strategizing, I saw her try to push an experiment with the line of how bold her language could be around calling out racism, white supremacy, mm-hmm. right? And she wouldn't, if I'm, and correct me if I'm, if I'm misremembering, but there was a moment in time where she was calling those things out, but not using those words. Know that she changed it. I think she tried to explain further. She used gotcha. the phrase historically privileged in yes. 1988. That's and that's was. what made the people upset. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. So it got the folks upset. And then fast forward to another superintendent. Um, I forget his first name, but Hornbeck. David Hornbeck. David, that's right. He, white man, and it goes back to not being native to Philly or from that district, right? He then calls out racism, white supremacy in a very blunt way down the line, but then he ends up kind of paying for that, right? If you compare the Constance Clayton situation in 88 to uh, Hornbeck's situation in maybe 98, you know, um, so 10 years apart, Clayton stayed in her role for another five years after that situation. Now she did get, uh, you know, threats and all this sort of stuff and op-eds and people were so mad at her and she had to have a police escort because, you know, they thought that somebody might pop off. Hornback, Hornback uh, didn't last, he barely lasted the next two years. So I, you know, I, it's a little difficult, right? Um, I think Constance Clayton had a little more grace extended to her because she's a, she's a native Philadelphian. Hornbeck was an outsider. So off top, people are going to have less grace for you because they like, who are, you know, who are you? Hornbeck were to make the same accusations of racism in 2022 that he made in 1998. It may be perceived differently, but some, and here's the thing. He was right. The legislature was racist and it's funding. The, the problem is that's not necessarily helpful when you're trying to get funding from the legislature, right? It's not that he was wrong. Um, I just don't know that it was his, um, I'm not even gonna say it wasn't his position. It wasn't in his best interest or the interest of the district for him in that role to call that out. You understand what I'm saying? And I find distinction that I feel like people have to pay attention to. And my perception of him is a perception I sometimes have of, um, White male colleagues in particular, sometimes white women, when you're trying to be the wokest person in the room. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, that feels like overkill. It feels like, well, what are you hiding? What are you covering up? You know? 
So Hornback, um, Hornback, I don't think was a bad guy. I don't think he was wrong in when he said they were racist. I just think that that's, you know, it's prop, that's not how you get people. You don't call them racist and then be like, yo, so give me some money. Thank you for your racism. And now I would like a check. It doesn't really work that way. That's an inconvenient truth because there were moments in each superintendent's time where I felt like, okay, they clearly were trying to do what they believed was right and it made sense to believe it. However, in this context, it may not have been the best move to make. You can get caught up. You can get caught up even trying to do the right things. You asked the question and you called it an age old black question. At what point is this selling out or buying in? What are what is your answer or ponderings to this question in the sense of like school leadership? Like what 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 marks the selling out point? What marks the buying in point? So I'm gonna start out by saying I'm not the type of academic who's gonna tell you I always have all the answers. Um, it's always my goal that people leave, whether it's a class I'm teaching or a professional development I'm leading or a talk I'm giving, or now reading this book with better questions they have than than where they started. I'm saying that to say, you know, I don't know. Um, I think it depends. I And it's hard for me to say this without calling, you know, specific people out, um, which is, you know, not really my favorite thing to do. But I'm going to take somebody who, so let's talk about um, Arlene Ackerman. Arlene Ackerman passed away in 2013. So I want to start with that. She was superintendent from 2008 to 2011 in Philadelphia. When she first started her tenure in Philly in 2008, I was a doctoral student at Temple and she she came over there to speak and she invited me to shadow her for a day. She was like, you want to be a superintendent? Hi. I was like, no, ma'am. No, thank you. I'm <laughs> definitely not interested in that. But she was like, well, you still need to come shadow me for a day. I think in some ways she was bought in. I think a lot of us, unfortunately, had bought in to deficit narratives and ideologies about us. One could argue that when she took almost a million dollar payout to leave that she, you know, sort of sold out at that point. I don't know, I think it's a question worth exploring. And I think it's a question, more than having an answer, the the inquiry is worthy of pursuit. And I think it's something each of us has to sit with. Um, it's something I have to sit with in my role as a professor, at a black, as a black professor at this, predominantly white institution, you know, at what point am I selling out or buying in? And how do I, I mean, for me, for my own personal politics, my constant attempt is to do neither, you know, Mm -hmm. but also not to play myself in the process. I feel like money in mid to large size districts is like this agent of chaos sometimes, <laughs> right? Uh, at least the way it's set up uh, within the district. Um, it's supposed to be an agent for good, an agent of support, right? To do what's best for uh, students and families. But the way it's just allocated and gets shifted, it just makes, it, it makes things, it can make things very challenging as evidenced through almost all your superintendents that you wrote about. What obstacles would you say are still present in funding high quality learning experiences despite the Biden bucks and the Biden bag being spread around right now, post post and during COVID? I'm so confused about this Biden bucks and Biden bag. Where is it? What is it? What, what am I missing? Because I ain't got no extra checks. 
from Joe Biden. So what is this bag? What is that? So so to my understanding, Joe Biden and some policy made it so that there was a lot more money available to pu public education um, and, and school districts. So I guess so let's reframe the question. Even if there was this huge surplus or spike up of money given to our most dysfunctional districts, what obstacles still may be pr uh, present? And how would you recommend uh, folks work around them with an increased surplus of money? So the first thing I would say is that too many of us operate like gatekeepers. Um, we act like people have to be worthy, right? So I want to think, think with me for a minute around old school KIPP charter schools where they used to make the children earn desks, right? This idea that you coming to school is not enough, but you have to somehow prove that you are worthy of something that you can't even really do school without, which is a desk, right? Mm -hmm. I'm saying that to say, I think a lot, unfortunately, um, what would be a hindrance is people who operate like that, who see themselves of the, um, the arbiters of the determinants of who is and is not worthy. You know, Philadelphia is not just sort of hampered uh, in terms of um, racial issues, but also economic issues. I wrote an op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer about the special admission school process and the idea that um, these sort of select college prep special admission schools in the city, like the one from which I graduated, Central High School, which is one of the oldest public schools in the nation, having opened up in 1836, um, that schools like Central and Masterman in Philadelphia should hold spots for students, sort of the highest performing students in the zip codes in the city where the income is the lowest. Okay. When I tell you the, the emails I got from people and the inbox messages from my fellow Central High alum and from other people, educators, I'm so angry that I had the unmitigated gall to suggest that there were poor children in the city of Philadelphia, most of whom are black and brown, who could do the work at a central high or a masterman high, um, who might not get in because maybe their test scores de didn't demonstrate it, you know, for all types of reasons, right? Um, but that they would save some spots. Like I, my argument was essentially, you can't tell me that there aren't bright children in every part of this city even among the people who are the poorest. It doesn't make sense. Of course, there are kids from these zip codes who should have a place in these schools, even if you can't tell from the regular metrics. But people like to use things like, well, what's the test scores? What's the grades? And have those be the, you know, the things that we decide. As if COVID hasn't been a factor for, you know, test taking and, and grades and, and all that for the last three years now, right? So I think even if we had all the money, you still have people in place who basically feel like, you know, either they're more worthy than somebody else or everybody isn't worthy of having access to things based on um, the money. You have a subtitle in your uh, book. Uh, what was it called? It had me dying laughing. Um, Big Pimpin' Spending Cheese. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right. It, it, and when you said that in the book, it really made me think about what you're just talking about in terms of like, um, I have this money. Oh, you think that we can use this for good? No, nah, this is going to stay in my pockets. You continue wallowing and and 
and and suffering. <laughs> well, let's um, talk about that for a second because when yeah. I that's in the fifth chapter. Mm -hmm. One of the things I realized the reason I called it big pimping and spending cheese is because to me it felt like pimp game, like it felt like Philadelphians were being pimped. So in that chapter, it's at the beginning of No Child Left Behind and right. the state having taken over the school district of Philadelphia. Now, all these decades prior, the, the administrators and school board members and city council are begging the state, please give the district the money it needs. And it's no, 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 no. Well, when the state takes over, now the state and, and the federal government are sending all of this money into the district, but the district becomes a funnel. And so instead of that money staying in the district, the money goes right back out to corporations and nonprofits who are selling their services to the district under the, the idea that black and brown students are failures. And the only way that they can sort of be remediated is through these very expensive programs. So in the interest of uh, thinking about how you compared history to Big Pimpin' Spending Cheese from the song Big Pimpin' Jay-Z, I did want to ask you, why did you choose to name chapters after hip-hop albums? I have to say, and, and this, uh, I think I thought about this too when you asked about what is my writing style. I think about lyrics and I think about words and how, you know, how words are used. And I feel like one of the most beautiful and important places that shows up is in hip hop. Um, and in nineties hip hop in particular, I don't, I, I, I would be lying to you if I tell, told you I listened to the, uh, the stuff now. Cause I don't, I don't know what these young people talking about now. I feel real old. <laughs> I do. I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't know this. I was trying, I mean, I was trying to come up with like catchy, uh, sort of, um, titles for the chapters. But then sometimes when I would feel stuck, I would I would listen to my music. I would listen to um, hip hop. Fear of a Black Planet just seemed to me to be perfect to typify how these sort of white ethnics, as they are referred to historically in Philadelphia, in the text anyway, um, sort of regarded school reform. The second chapter is called Thug Life because I see Frank Rizzo as the ultimate thug um, in police, you know, in terms of police and politics. For the Constance Clayton chapter, I thought about calling it Ladies First um, after Queen Latifah, who I, I love Queen Latifah. Um, but instead, Black Rain seemed to make more sense because um, Reverend Leroy Simmons, who you know I, I quote a bunch in the book, he talked about um, Constance Clayton's tenure being more of a reign um, because of how she got to sort of live through it and embody it and decide when she came in and decide when she left. Ready to Die, I chose that for a couple reasons. So first of all, um, you read the book. So you see that at the book opens with, that chapter opens with the superintendent saying July 1, 1998 is the day when the school district of Philadelphia will cease to exist in any recognizable form. And when I read that in the minutes, I was like, how the hell the superintendent, you leave this buddy, like, <laughs> You are paid for this joint to exist. And how are you going to be in here in a minute talking about it's going to cease to exist, right? So, but it's also 94. 94 is when I was a senior in high school. So I have very fond memories of riding around the city with my girlfriends, who are still very much my friends, listening to Biggie's Ready to Die, right? When it came out, things fall apart. 
because I had to give a nod to Roots. You know, their their title comes from the Chenwa Achebe book. Right. And when you open the Chenwa Achebe book, Things Fall Apart, he's quoting this, this a part of a poem from William Butler Yeats, where he says, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. And he says something about the best lack all intention while the worst, you know, are basically doing all the things. Um, and then Black on Both Sides, I named that for my favorite hip hop album of all time, From Most Death, which came out my first year of teaching, but also because the last two superintendents I look at are both Black. And people like to believe that when you have a Black leader and it's a Black city and Black children, everything is going to be fine. But I wanted to be clear and to convey the idea that there were Black people on both sides of, of the situation. So you bring in these external Black people who know very little about Philadelphia and its politics and its history, um, and they are sort of implementing an external agenda that I feel like was horrible for the city of Philadelphia, for our public schools. And at the same time, you have Black Philadelphians, Black families, Black activists, Black parents who are pushing back against them. And so that's where I get, uh, you know, Black on both sides. So how does your text help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful for students? I would hope that my text, if, if you're talking about at the classroom level um, of educators, I would hope that my text would help those educators be more sort of reflective about their own sort of um, how they see how schools operate, how school systems operate, and actually lead, I would hope that it would lead them to question some of what they think they know and the assumptions they've made about how schools operate and think about how can I um, be a buffer for my curriculum. So one of the things I often talk to my students about, sometimes they don't want to hear it, is in order to make your curriculum responsive and all these other things that, you know, you named, you have to be a buffer. Like you have to sort of review that curriculum and ask yourself in what ways does this enhance students' lives? Um, not just, you know, some mythical life, but the life they actually have and sort of the world that's coming, not just this sort of Pollyanna world, right? We have to be a buffer, I feel like, around what does it mean for me to sort of interpret the curriculum? Where do I need to maybe um, supplement? Where do I need to swap out? And so I hope this book uh, will help people think about as classroom educators, you don't just have to do what's handed to you. And if you are being monitored or surveilled in such a way that it seems that way, hopefully this book encourages people to become strategic and subversive so that they can show their administrators what needs to be seen, but also think about the ways to educate and empower their students and work with families toward um, our collective liberation. What about for the school building leaders or system leaders? How does it help them support the people who are trying to provide a high quality education for our kids? Yep. So I would say for building level leaders, I hope they question, right? So the same way teachers would be sort of questioning and buffering around curriculum, I would hope that school building leaders are doing that in terms of budget and staffing, in terms of programming. What do we need to have in here? Who And ask questions about who's centered, right? And who's being marginalized? How do we engage those who've been left out or pushed out or decentered? I would hope that my book helps building level leaders do that. In terms of system level leaders, 
Oof, now that was hard. I would hope that they would ask, in what ways am I complicit in a system that was already set up to fail black and brown people? How can I disrupt that system, right? How can I, knowing that just settle and go, because the system is constantly operating, um, the system is already set up for our destruction. And so as a system leader, how can I sort of um, interrupt that? Where can I sort of be strategic about holding off the way these systems, no matter what they say, seek to sort of disenfranchise uh, black and brown people, especially those who are poor? No doubt. No doubt. We must close out this podcast episode with a final quote from your book that you'd like to stamp us out with. I get to pick? Absolutely, yeah. So I would say this is the challenge of Black leadership of white institutions. Aspiring ascendance to improve the organization on behalf of Black people is often muffled by the ascendance in the organization. The higher that people climb in an institution, the more they represent that institution and work for its preservation and their own preservation within that institution. Institutional improvement for justice usually moves down in its priority, especially when the organization is steeped in and accountable to the ideals, desires, and trappings of white supremacy and capitalism. Black educators and any educators committed and to collective improvement, justice, and liberation, not just individual advancement, have to be particularly mindful of whose interests they serve as they do their work and who benefits from their policies and practices. Educators who aspire to be freedom fighters must free themselves of the white gaze and consider the larger social purposes for their work. This requires informed empathy for the dispossessed, the marginalized, the black, the brown, the poor, and the under-resourced, not just sympathy, charity, and philanthropy. Any educator with lackadaisical commitment to disrupting systems of oppression is complicit in the system of oppression. This spin of the LP with Kamika Royal left me with a few things to reflect on. It's making me think about the James Clear quote, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. Instead, we fall to the level of our systems. Not only do I see that truth in what Dr. Royal has shared, but I also see how expectations about people inform the creation of systems. So it's best to have the most equity-focused minds creating and remixing systems to the point that even the lowest level of our systems still promote consistently equitable teaching practices. Also, we often talk about individuals having stories. A system story, our own system or another's, can help us understand the codependent nature between people and policy and how that impacts our present and future. This episode also reminded me that anti-racist black educators who wanna educate their students often have to contend with the melodies of madness that exist in their systems and have to choose whether to nod, dance, or reject those melodies in their daily instruction and interaction with their students and colleagues. Probably the deepest lesson I've received from this allegorical history of black educators in the Philly School District is identifying what kind of fixing is taking place when union and district leadership make policy decisions. Because the word fix has two definitions. There's a repair and remedy fix or a lock in and make permanent fix. 
Sometimes a decision is presented like a repair and remedy fix, but when you look at its impact, it only works to lock in and make permanent the inequities that have long existed in that system. Dr. Royal's work helps us thread the needle in seeing where and how these systems fix themselves, but also creates the opportunity for us to use that same needle to prick our own conscience so we can examine where our roles are in that fix. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at unboundedu. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.